The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. It's right about now in the year where it kind of transitions from fall to like the holiday season part of fall. You know, now we've got just quickly upon us, we'll have Thanksgiving and then we'll have Christmas. And one of the things I think about when it comes to the holiday season is that there are our tables. There's tables that we're gonna sit, sit at with family and friends. I mean, we're going to sit at a Thanksgiving table. We'll sit at a a Christmas table, a Noche Buena table. We'll be sitting at tables this holiday season. And I was thinking about, you know, it's interesting who is at these holiday tables, who's around the table. And that's always an an interesting dynamic every year. I was thinking about um, that. That's a dynamic that even starts when you're a kid. I remember for us in our house, we had a, a, an adult table, and a kid's table. Anyone that's the dynamic or either growing up or in your house, you have the adult table and the kid's table. And I remember when I was a kid, when I was little, man, I, I loved the kid's table. I didn't want to be at the stuffy adult table. I wanted to be at the kid's table. I didn't have people like watching me, making sure that my manners were right. And that we did, I mean, we, we, we just did what we wanted. We laughed, we played the games we wanted. I loved the kid's table until I was an older kid. Maybe I was a preteen, an early teenager, and I'm like, kid's table? That's, an, that's offensive. I'm not a kid. I'm an adult. I deserve to be at the adult table. And then when my older sister, she gets promoted to the adult table, I'm still with the kids at the kid's table. I'm offended. And then one day I get to the adult's table, and I'm like, this is so lame. I wish I was at the kid's table. You know, why am I all the way here? This is terrible, Okay. I'm hearing all the laughter in the other room and wishing I was back there. Okay, it's interesting. Who's at the table and why are they there? I mean, think about who's around, uh, gonna be around the table um, this year at your various holidays. Um, it's interesting. What brings every person to the table? It's definitely not that you're all the same. I mean, it's not, you don't even have the same uh, opinions about the food. Like, it's not even like, let's pull all the people who agree on how the turkey or the lechon should be cooked. Let's just make sure we all agree. If you think it should be this way, we'll come to the table. Let's bring all the people who, who agree on the correct way mashed potatoes are made. Do they have lumps in it? Do they have no lumps? Do they have part of the peel in it or no peel? Like, let's, you don't just bring people together because you agree on the food. And that's just the, that's just the beginning. I mean, you think about who's around the table, you probably don't agree with everyone, not just on the food, but on politics and religion and sports. I mean, there's so many things that brings you around the table. Um, There's so many things that you disagree around the table. So what is it that brings you there? If you're around that table together around the holiday season, I mean, it's because you're family. And the people there that are not blood related, they're family too. Everyone around the table, like there's a sense that you're a family. I mean, you know each other, like maybe too much. Like, you know, you know the stories and you like to tell them. They like to tell the stories about you that you don't like for them to tell about you. They know the stories. I mean, you're around the table because you're family. Now, Jesus, he used the same dynamic, especially in the book of Luke. So many significant moments happened with Jesus at a table. And I think that's significant. There's a reason he does that because it's this powerful metaphor for who's around God's table. 
And so there's these scenes as you walk through the Gospels, and especially the book of Luke, there's these scenes that take place around the table, and Jesus uses that setting to talk about who's supposed to be around the table, who's actually at God's table, and why are they there? And we're going to look at one of those today, and, and as we are called to bring people to the table, and as we're called to ask ourselves, am I even at God's table? And if so, why am I at God's table? What got me to God's table? This passage we're going to look at is, is absolutely essential. It's so profound, so beautiful, this particular passage uh, found in Luke chapter 7. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open to Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 36. Here's what we're going to find out. Um, if we are compelled as God's people to invite other people to the table, if we don't know why we're at the table or how we got there, then we don't have the compulsion, the drive, or the capacity to invite others to the table. I want you to take a look at what this passage says. Beautiful scene. We're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anoint them with the ointment. All right, pause with me there. Let's, let's kind of get this scene. It starts with this. One of the Pharisees, we'll learn that his name is Simon. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to his house for dinner. Now, let that sink in for a second. Remember, this is the same group that will eventually petition a pilot to have Jesus executed. This is the same group that will stir up the crowds to demand his crucifixion. This is the same group that will drum up false witnesses about Jesus in a, in a terrible, unjust mock trial. Like this is the same group that keeps challenging Jesus and questioning Jesus and trying to trap Jesus, trying to expose Jesus. So why would Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus to his house? Well, maybe he actually respects and loves Jesus. And there were a few exceptions that there were a couple Pharisees that figured it out and actually loved Jesus and followed him. Those were very few exceptions. We'll actually find out as the, the story unfolds is that Simon the Pharisee has no love for Jesus. He has no respect for Jesus. And we'll see that as the story plays out. So then why would he invite Jesus to his table? Because it looks good. He wants this feast to be on his resume. I mean, Jesus has gone viral at this point. Everyone knows who Jesus is. They're all talking about, is this, is this guy a prophet? I mean, he sounds like a prophet. He preaches like a prophet. And then, I mean, he's bold and authoritative, but he also backs it up with these miracles. He's like Elijah or Elisha. These guys that did all these miracles that kind of proved that their words were from God. I mean, this must be a mighty prophet. Is he a prophet? The Pharisees are like, I don't think he's a prophet. Is he a prophet? Is he not a prophet? He, Simon can invite this very, 
very famous, very talked about, very polarizing figure, Jesus of Nazareth, so that he can just kind of saunter into the Pharisees' debate when they're like, what do you think about this Jesus of Nazareth? And he can say, well, once when I was dining with him at my house, I got to talk to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that is. You know the famous guy everyone's talking about? Yeah, I had him in my home. I mean, it looks good to have Jesus on your resume. It looks good. So he invites Simon to his house. And then it says, a woman enters in. And he refers to her as a woman of the city, a sinner. I think this is delicate language for she's a prostitute. Notorious. She comes in. And it says that Jesus is reclining at the table. Now, you got to understand this for the, the imagery of how this plays out. When we think of um, sitting at a table, we think like this. We've got chairs. They help us sit upright at a table. You sit like this. Your feet are underneath you, underneath the table. That's not how the ancients eat. Um, and so, in fact, if you saw that, you know, that famous picture of the Last Supper and Jesus is in the middle and they're all around and they're all seated and they're all upright. That's the European version of that. That's not how it looked. They reclined. So in uh, ancient Hebrew culture, the table would be way low to the ground. There would be mats going out from the table and you would recline at the table. You would sit um, leaning on probably your left arm like this, kind of lying on your side and be eating like this and your feet are going out. So everyone's kind of feet are going out from the table like spokes from the wheel. You kind of picture the scene? This is how the ancient Hebrews ate. This is the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks. Romans were similar, except they had furniture that kind of elevated it a little higher, but the same thing, they're reclining at the table with their feet out. out. For us, it's like, you're like lying down and eating. That's so weird. But they'd be like, what are you doing sitting upright like that? That's bizarre. Like, this would be just as weird to them. The way they would eat is they would be reclining. So Jesus' head is at the table. They're looking, they're talking, and his feet are way out behind him. Now a woman walks in, and by the end, she's wept on his feet, wiped him with this hair, kissing his feet, anointing his feet with oil. And um, Luke prefaces this whole thing by saying, behold. He's saying, check this out. You are not going to believe what happened. You're like, man, that's really strange. Like, kissing his feet? Like, I've, maybe it's happened. I've never been at a feast, a dinner where that's happened. Like that would be super uncomfortable, okay? I've got a bubble of personal space and that like way past the line, all right? And you say that would be very strange and kind of like weirdly inappropriate. Like that would just make me very, very uncomfortable. Okay, you're like, what kind of weird customs did they have back then that would make this okay? There are no customs here. As weird as this would be for you, weirder for them. That's why Luke is like, you're not going to believe it. <laughs> Check this out. So how does this play out? Okay, this is, this is the way I put this together. And, and some scholars think this is what happens. The, the custom would be to anoint a special guest's head with oil. That also happens to Jesus at one point. So she's probably approaching Jesus to a party definitely she was not invited to. She's approaching in Jesus. She's got her alabaster flask of ointment, very valuable, very expensive. She's walking up, 
trying to get to Jesus' head. As she approaches Jesus, people are probably kind of looking at her sideways, like, who do you think you are to barge in? What do you think you're going to do? And as she gets to Jesus, the only thing that I can put together is that she's so overcome with emotions that she falls down on her knees and she's wetting his feet with her tears. That means she's not like, it's not like one beautiful glistening tear coming down her cheek. This is like weeping and sobbing. She's on her knees, crying over his feet. She hasn't even gotten up to where his head is. She's crying over his feet, wetting her feet with her tears. And then she wasn't planning on cleaning his feet. She has no towel. So she's there. She's horrified. Then she takes her hair out, mopping up his feet. At that point, she has done something straight scandalous. Like for a woman to unbind her hair in this culture in mixed company would be like, people at this point are like, <gasps> like that's like not something you would do. She's now got nothing to clean his feet. She's touching his feet. She's probably like humiliated. Why did I think that was a good idea? But she's so overcome with emotion. She starts kissing his feet now that she's cleaned him with her tears in her hair. And then maybe just so like, wow, this was a disaster. She just goes ahead and anoints his feet because she can't even maybe look at him. I can't believe. I think this whole thing played out not the way she planned. I think this turned out to be a complete disaster. And she's there weeping at his feet. I think it's like, you hear like forks being dropped on plates. You hear all the talking has stopped. Everyone's silent. Their eyes are humongous. They're looking at this and they're wondering what Jesus is going to do. Now, why did she do all that? What's she thinking? Some point she heard this rabbi probably rolled her eyes and then she saw him touch a leper. She's like, wait, what? And then saw a guy in her town that she knew had been paralyzed. He's walking home, rejoicing, carrying his mat. No physical therapy needed. She hears that he actually forgave the man's sins and then is eating at a tax collector's house with other people there like her. And just the sheer idea that there could be a spiritual leader, someone that is supposedly representing God, that has that kind of kindness struck her. And I wonder, part of me wonders if she's like, he's, he's a rabbi for us. And I wonder if when she heard that he was going to the Pharisee's house, I wonder if there's just a part of her that just felt like he sold out. And I wonder if she wanted to make a scene and she wanted to go in front of all these fancy people and, and she knows who she is and anoint his head and be like, because he's one of ours. But she gets there and all these eyes of all these condemning religious leaders looking at her. She can't even make it there and she just falls down because she's like, I'm not here to make a scene. I just love this person. Unbelievable moment. What happens? Let's pick it up in verse 39. 
What does Simon think? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Yeah, I don't think he thought this was going to happen at his resume padding dinner that he was going to have. This is not what he expected, but you know what? When you invite Jesus to your table, you get all that comes with him. Simon is processing it like this. Follow his logic. The debate is, is Jesus a prophet? And so here's his logic. He's like, okay, good prophets don't let women like this touch them. Premise one. Premise two, if he was a prophet, he would know what type of woman she is. He'd be able to perceive who she is. Conclusion, he's letting her touch him, so either he is not a prophet at all or he's not able, he's not able to perceive who she is, so she cannot, he, conclusion, he is not a prophet. That's how he's thinking. Now, you and I know different. Something in Simon's logic is broken, right? That, that's, we know who Jesus is, this side of the gospels and his death and his resurrection. So let's work through this. The problem is not premise number two. He actually does know who she is. He knows exactly who she is. So his problem might be with premise, the problem might be with premise number one. Simon's premise that a prophet would not let a woman like this, as he put it, a woman like this touch him. So that's obviously the, the, the problem. Well, he's a Pharisee. He's got that quintessential classic religious framework. And here's how that religious framework works. The religious framework that, that the Pharisees would uphold, and really this is just run-of-the-mill religion anywhere you find it, is first of all, guilt by association. I'm not going to associate you. He's like, there's a reason I didn't invite this lady to the, to the party altogether. It's guilt by association. I don't associate with people like this. If I associate with people like this, maybe their sin will somehow get on me because I'm a, I'm a good person. If there's people that are less good than me, they are not my friends. I don't hang out with them. I don't associate with them because that would be guilt by association. So good religion upholds guilt by association. There's another one. It's guilt by assumption. Well, if they see me hanging out with a person like this, I mean, they'll make assumptions about me. And I can't have people making assumptions about me. I mean, Jesus, clearly, do you understand the assumptions that people are making about you while you're letting this woman kiss your feet? You haven't retracted your feet in horror? You haven't just shooed her away? I mean, it's making a lot of assumptions. You're allowing everyone to make assumptions about the level of intimacy, maybe previous intimacy, that you've had with this woman. If she has that level of access to touch your body like that, I mean, the assumptions that people are making. A good prophet, good godly religion upholds guilt by assumption. But there's a third one. I mean, good religion. I mean, it upholds guilt by acceptance. I can't allow you to be my friend. I can't allow you near me. Until you clean your life up, I can't be your friend. I can't let you in my house. I can't let you around me. Go clean yourself up and then I will accept you. Or if I'm going to be your friend, let me first make sure you are fully aware of all of the sins that you have that I disapprove of because I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. 
Now, you may not feel loved because I'm just dragging all your sins out first, but that's, that's the framework that I'm going to hold up. It's, it's these three, guilt by association, guilt by assumptions, and guilt by acceptance. And so all those things lead him to believe the prophet wouldn't let her touch him. So that makes, means that we've got to rethink our framework. Now, Jesus is going to have a response to these thoughts. Simon didn't say these out loud. In fact, when we get to verse 40, this is when we learn this man's name. He says this, verse 40, And Jesus answered to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Simple parable. I mean, it's kind of easy to know where Jesus is going with this, right? So I want you to imagine there's a moneylender. There's two debts. There's one with... Uh, that one guy owes him 500 denarii. That's like two years worth of salary, thereabouts. The other one owes him 50 denarii. That's like two months worth of salary, thereabouts. And he says, I want you to imagine neither could pay their debt and the money lender just forgave the debt of both. Here, your, your debt of two years worth of salary, forgiven. Your debt of um, two months worth of salary is forgiven. He says, now which of the two debtors is going to love the, the moneylender who forgave them the most? I mean, it's kind of an obvious answer, but he needs Simon to say it out loud. I guess the one who's been forgiven more. You said, yeah, that's exactly right. Now we see where Jesus is going, right? I mean, it's like there's two people here. We got Simon and we've got the woman. And um, on one hand, we've got Simon. He seems like he's got his life all cleaned up. Maybe very few sins, maybe hidden sins. And so um, he doesn't really get this woman who's been forgiven a lot. She's got a lot of sins. I mean, this is where you're going, right, Jesus? I mean, little sin, a lot of sin. If you're forgiven little, here's the ratio. You, you love little. You've forgiven a lot. You love a lot. I mean, it's just kind of clear uh, where he's going. Um, but there's always a twist with Jesus. He's a brilliant storyteller. Listen to the twist. Let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 44. Here's what he says. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Here's what he says. He says, Simon, I mean, just contrast between the two. He says, look what she's done. She, gave, she, she washed my feet with her tears and her hair. She's kissed my feet, anointed my feet with oil. This is an extravagant expression of love. Simon, you didn't even do like the basic social graces. You didn't offer me water to wash my own feet. Like that's just run of the mill of the custom. 
You didn't, you didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. That would have been a, the, the custom. She's washed my feet with her tears in her hair and, and she's kissed my feet. You didn't offer me, if I'm the honored guest at the table, you didn't offer me oil for my head. She's poured this expensive oil out on my feet. Look at this extravagant expression of love and she's loving a lot because she's been forgiven a lot. And he says, but, but look at you, you've done nothing. See, here's what's so interesting. The parable talks about it. You're, they're forgiven first and then they love according to the ratio. He says, one's forgiven a lot, so they love a lot. The other one's forgiven a less, so they love a little bit less than the other. But now he says, you can actually discern the same the other way. Watch how much she loves. That's evidenced by how much she's been forgiven. She's been forgiven a lot. He doesn't notice, he doesn't reference, if you notice, how much Simon's been forgiven. But what he does say is, she's done a lot, been forgiven a lot. You've done nothing. And he leaves it open for Simon to ponder. Simon has to walk away saying, okay, I have no love for this man. Have I been forgiven at all? I mean, do I think I'm perfect? I mean, I think I need, if I'm honest, I need forgiveness for some things. I mean, only someone delusional thinks they have no sin. And it leaves it for Simon to ponder, how much have you been forgiven? But that's not the last thing he says. Let's wrap up the story, verse 48. And he said to her, this is the first thing he now says to the woman directly. Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't it interesting that um, Simon says he's no prophet because he doesn't know who this woman is. But he does know who the woman is. And he demonstrates that he's a prophet because he demonstrates that he knows who Simon is. But then he takes it a step further. He's not just a prophet. He says, your sins are forgiven. This is no prophet. This is God in the flesh. And the people are now, now the whole room is aghast. Now everyone's just shocked. They're like, who does he think he is? Like that he's forgiving sins. And then he says something in the same way he's been addressing Simon for what's in his heart. Now he's addressing everyone in the room with his words for what's in their heart. When he looks at the woman and he says, it's your faith. Your faith has saved you. He's now saying to everyone in the room, do you, do you have the faith to believe who I actually am? I am no mere prophet. I am God in the flesh. Which means this is not just a prophet who lets this, this woman touch him like this. It's shattering their religious categories. This is the almighty, most holy God in the flesh letting a woman touch his feet like this. That shatters our concept of holiness and righteousness and who God is and how he operates. He says, can you take it on faith? He says, your faith is what saves you. 
Faith that I am more than who I appear to be. Faith that I am God in the flesh and faith that I have, I have the authority to forgive your sins. If you can take that on faith, that will save you. And then he says the most beautiful words she could have ever heard. He says, go in peace. Shalom. Go being whole down to the core of who you are. All that craving, all that that yearning, all that clawing and striving for significance or for love or for belonging or for acceptance. He has just filled that, that vacant void in her, in her soul. He's filled that vacuum with the only thing that can fill that hole, the love of God, the creator himself. And he says, now walk out of here, no longer spending your life striving and yearning for what only God can do. Go walking in rest on who I've said you are. Powerful moment. Powerful moment. All this happens here around this table. You know, as we think about this table, there's two types of people at this table. I want you to think about it. This is, let's say this is Jesus's table. And Jesus is, is um, sitting here. He's got two types of people. He's got a Pharisee, Simon. And he's got a woman, notorious sinner. They both end up at the table. Can you just think with me about, about their stories? They have a story. I mean, we don't really know them. But this story of this woman, let's, start, let's talk about this woman. I mean, what got her here? What got her to this moment where she's weeping over Jesus' feet? You know, maybe she grew up with a dad like Simon. Uh, maybe your dad was a Pharisee, or maybe he always wanted to be a Pharisee but could never, never achieve it and took that angst out on the rest of his family. Maybe he was strict and demanding and, and they, the kids always felt like they were a disappointment. The wife and the kids always felt like they were a disappointment, never living up to that standard of perfection that he himself never lived up to but didn't seem to know it. And so as she always felt like her performance, her religious, spiritual performance was always under scrutiny and she could never live it up, she'd had it. And maybe one day she ran away from home and she said, I'll show you, I will show you that I'm gonna live my my own life, my way, and it's all going to work out. And you'll find out that your way is broken. And so maybe she ran away and she went to another town and she tried to make a life for herself. And what she found out is that she, that as hard as she tried to self-actualize and make herself into something in spite to the rigidity of her family, maybe she just found that her way was crumbling and she could not make it. And she finds herself doing things in a lifestyle and working in an industry that's so broken that she's ashamed, but she can never go back. She's been disowned, so she finds herself angry and bitter and alone and ashamed. Or maybe it's a different story. I mean, maybe it's not that. I mean, maybe her story is she was victimized as a little girl. She didn't do anything wrong, but something was taken from her. And so she runs into a lifestyle to try and reclaim something that she lost. 
And so with every account encounter with a man, she's trying to reclaim it as her own. But with every encounter she goes into, she actually feels more and more robbed. She feels more and more used. She feels more and more unwanted. She feels more and more worthless until in the end, she feels so broken, so unwanted, so worthless, so ashamed that she just turns into this, in, into this industry and she just says, this is all I'm good at. This is all I'm worth. I might as well walk into it. And every encounter she feels more broken, more unloved, more unwanted wanted, more ashamed, more unhuman. And when she encounters someone that might just give her a little piece of kindness, she falls apart in her hope that she might be accepted by this man. And so she finds herself tears of gratitude over his feet that he showed her a little bit of kindness and acceptance. She had an encounter that day and she walked out never the same. But Simon's got a story too. How did he end up here? I mean, maybe he had a high performance family too. Like maybe there was just a, maybe his dad was a Pharisee or maybe his dad was super religious and he kept pumping into his mind. Like if you, you've got to be a religious enough and maybe one day you could be a Pharisee and here, maybe you could be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Maybe you could train the other Pharisees and it was just always pumped in. And maybe, maybe he did well when he was being trained at the schools and then they kept saying over him, no, you're going to be a great Pharisee. You're going to do it and we believe in you. And he, he just took that weight on top of him and just felt like he had to achieve and had to achieve. And the more and more he pushed, he pushed. He felt like there was the inside was hollow, but he had no other options. He had all of these expectations to uphold. And so every time he's around people trying to lift up what they think of him, lift up the expectations he has on his shoulder, more and more he's sinking into the resentment that this is not a life he chose for himself. And inside is this hollowness on one moment, just full of arrogance and pride. And on the other moment, deep shame about the hidden sins that he's got that no one else can know about. And deep down, he's teaching about the peace and about the love and the joy that should, and the shalom that should come from following Yahweh. But they're all things he's never himself experienced. And he's resentful and broken. And when he sees that she's walking away with a little bit of peace and love and acceptance and salvation, he finds himself so envious. She's got something he wants and he can't believe he's saying it and thinking it. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe he was so ashamed of his family, so ashamed of the name of his family, that he had to make himself something, and so he was driven, and he followed all the rules, and he put, he, he put distance from him and his family as much as he could, and he wanted, with every single step he took, he was writing the shame that he could never get off of him by his broken family, and so he was, he was going to prove to everyone he would never be around someone that had a stain on them, and so he found himself, while he's pushing everyone out, trying to make himself believe that he's someone by who he associates with, he finds deep down he's, he's got this condemnation and self-righteousness which is leaving him utterly alone and such an inflated entitlement that he has that he's repellent to all those people around him. And he finds himself seated at tables with people that are not really his friends, but they're actually his enemies. And he finds himself deep down inside, so creased with anger and bitterness and offense and condemnation and judgmentalism that deep down he's so dead. But he's got to keep up the plastic facade that everything's okay. Do you know what this man needs? He needs kindness from Jesus. 
On one hand, it's amazing that Jesus would accept this woman. But this woman knows that she needs Jesus. How could he not run to someone who says, I I need you? But so great is his compassion on this Pharisee that he's willing to come to this Pharisee even though he blasphemously thinks he doesn't need the Almighty God, the Savior. That's astonishing kindness. So think about coming around the table. We can't effectively, church, go out and invite people into the table if we don't know what brought us here. If we haven't, if we're still not still broken, moved, worshipful at the fact that we get to be at the table, there's no way we can go out into the world and invite others because we are forgetting the grace and the kindness of Jesus in our lives. We talk about this as a church. We talk about following Jesus, the Greek word mathetes. If you're a follower of Jesus and mathetes, there's three things. You realize you're rescued, you're awestruck, and you're mobilized. It starts with this. I need to be rescued. It's humiliating to need to be rescued. It says, I can't do it. I need help. I need to be saved. I'm in real bad shape. If someone doesn't step in, you and I needed to be rescued by the Savior. And when you understand the lengths he went to to die on the cross and take our sins on himself and defeat death and rise again from the dead, and it was the treasure of heaven expending himself on the cross, bleeding out the most precious treasure in the universe, bled out for you at the high cost that you're redeemed and your sin debts are paid for. When you realize the high cost of your forgiveness, we're rescued and we never recover. We gloriously never recover from the fact that we're rescued. And it leads us to have an awe, a worship, pouring out over Jesus. Some of you, you can't, you can't but shed a tear every time. It might be 20 years ago, but you remember when Jesus saved you. You remember where you were when Jesus found you. And it brings tears to your eyes. You're awed that he would love you that much. And with that worshipful awe, remembering your rescue, you just want as many people to be rescued. See, when you know how much you've been forgiven and you're pouring that love on Jesus, now you are equipped to go out and draw other people to him. But if you're a Pharisee, if we allow, maybe some of us, we started one way and we're so used to being at the table that we say, well, of course I'm at the table. I believe correctly. I act correctly. I associate correctly. Of course I'm at the table. But can you just remember your story of where Jesus found you and let it stir up unbelievable love and appreciation for Jesus? Because some of you, this is your story right here. You're like this woman. And you say, man, I got to tell you where my story was at. I was so broken and lost and it was not a mystery. I knew it. I had failed at life. 
And I was caught up and entrenched in sin. I was broken in addiction. I was broken in a lifestyle I couldn't escape from. I thought there was no hope. And one day, all I did was reach out and cry out to Jesus, saying, I know I don't deserve your grace, but he came and he met me and he picked me up out of all the brokenness. I was like that lost sheep. He had to travel so far from the rest of the flock and he scooped me up. He didn't just lead me back. He carried me back in my brokenness, back to the flock. And he, he deemed me worthy to be part of his flock. I just can't believe the lengths that Jesus, the glorious, beautiful, almighty, wise Jesus went to to save me and how much I didn't deserve it. Some of you, that's your story. Others of you, maybe this is your story. Now, I got to be honest, I feel like my story is a little bit more like Simon the Pharisee. I've been reflecting this week, Lord, what would have happened had I not encountered you? If I never knew the gospel, if I never put my faith in Jesus, if I always thought it was my good Christian living that saved me, what would have happened? And here was the scariest thought to me. I think I probably still would have become a pastor. And as I play that out, what would have happened if Jesus hadn't brought me to the table? I think about the cold, ugly darkness of trying to lift up a facade all around saying, my life is good. I've got it all together. Like the, the weight of that, the yoke of that crushing me, the yoke of what would be stirring inside of me if I'd never encountered the grace of God, if I'd never encountered the, the swirling, condemning, dogmatic, legalistic judgmentalism that created a, a gaping vacuum in my soul, making me full of death, full of bitterness and easily offended and holding on to grudge and looking down on people and justifying myself and full of envy and jealousy and competitiveness and having no genuine relationship but surrounding myself with the right people just to appear right. And all along, I would be in a place where trying to preach a joy and a peace and a shalom that I had had no personal encounter with. And I think about the hell that it would have been to live that without the gospel. And I think about the utter dark blasphemy of looking at Jesus and saying, I got it. I can save myself. I'll be a good enough Christian. And I think the kindness of Jesus to come to me anyway and to bring grace into my life and to show me who I am so that I can stand comfortably and boldly before you and say, I don't have it all together. I'm not the husband that I want to be yet, but Jesus is working on me. I'm not the father I want to be yet. I'm not the man that I want to be yet, but I'm watching what Jesus is doing in my heart, making me more like him. He's brought me to the table that I so don't deserve to be at. Can you comprehend with me the kindness of Jesus, how much he loves you, whether you're like the woman or the Pharisee, how much he loves you and how he's brought you to the table. And in his kindness poured out grace. Can we be stunned by it? Can it draw us to worshipful tears of astonishment? Can we remember that we so don't deserve to be there? Then we might gain the same heart of grace to bring others who also need Jesus to the table with us. Let's take a moment of quiet reflection. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?
Christian, will you just bring yourself before Jesus today? And let me just say this. If you've lost your shock that you're at the table, if you've lost the surprise, if somehow you've fallen into a self-righteousness, a Phariseeism, well, of course I'm at the table. Look at me. If you've lost just an utter astonishment at his love and kindness, then would you just ask the Holy Spirit to help you comprehend the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of his love for you? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring that back to you. Maybe you're here and you're like, no, you don't understand. I'm too far gone. I don't know what this woman has done, but it's nothing compared to where I am. I'm so locked and I don't even know how he would bring me out of the lifestyle I'm in. Come to Jesus, please. His kindness and his grace is not just historic. It's history altering. Experience the grace of Jesus today. If you're locked in Phariseeism, if you're locked in an ugly religion, you may have thought, well, I'm just fine. If Jesus has some tips for how to live better, that's great, but I'm fine. I don't need a savior. Run to Jesus. Please don't walk in that darkness. Don't walk in that emptiness of uh, that empty religion that can so easily deceive you into believing that everything's all right when deep down inside there are dead bones there. Let him bring you to life. Repent of your empty religion and run to the grace that you have in Jesus, please. You may have called yourself a Christian all your life. You may have never missed a day in church, but you've never encountered the gospel. It's not faith in your good Christian living. It's faith in Jesus. Find shalom today. Find salvation today by putting your faith in Jesus. If you're one of those categories and you want to put your faith in Jesus, let me lead you in this prayer. Would you just, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to find salvation today, then simply make this your prayer. Say, silently right there in your seat, say, Jesus, I run to you because I need you. I need to be rescued. I need your kindness. I put my faith in you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.